Our text this morning as we continue our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Mark. We come now this morning to verses 34 through 38, finishing chapter 8. Uh, Lord willing, next week we'll go on to chapter 9. Uh, These words come right in the context just after Jesus has revealed Himself of who He is. Um, The previous section had to do with Peter's confession of Christ. Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And there are various answers. And then He said, who do you say that I am? And they said, Peter did, you are the Christ. That is the Messiah. That is the the longed for, expected, and hoped for one. You are Him. And then He began to tell them and teach them what the Son of Man is going to suffer. And then in verse 34 where we come today, He's going to give His invitation to follow Him. This is the call of the Messiah. That'd be a good sermon title this morning, The Call of the Messiah. I simply put it as this, Following Messiah. This is what Jesus commands and expects of all of His followers. He says this, verse 34, "...and He summoned the crowd with His disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me." For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when He comes in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. You see the invitation right there in verse 34. This is my first point. It's called one invitation. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after Me. It's a call to follow. Children, I know you all love to play a game called follow the leader. Right, kids? You ever played that game? Yes? No? I know you guys have. You play the game Follow the Leader. Where the leader goes, the children seek to follow. And it's often fun to play on a play set. So the, the children, the leader goes around the play set and the kids go around the play set and the leader goes up the slide. If you can imagine that. Up the slide and down the ladder and so all the children follow. And then he goes under the swing and all around. It's called following the leader. And that's what it means to come after Jesus. It means that we follow Him. It means that we imitate Him. It means that we live as He lived. We walk as He walks. And anyone who wishes to trust in Messiah must follow after Him. Notice how universal this invitation is. It's anyone. If anyone wishes to come after Me. Jesus here is saying it's not just merely the Jews. It's for the Gentiles as well. It's not just for those who attend church on a regular basis. It's not just those who are born of Christian parents. No, this is for all who want to come to Christ. This is for all who desire. In fact, that's the very word that Jesus uses here. If anyone wishes to come after Me. It's a desire. Does anyone want to follow Jesus? And I just put that out here. Do you want to follow Jesus this morning? Good. Good, good. Spoken like a child. Yes, I do. That's the call of Christ's kingdom. Jesus coerces no one to come after Him. He doesn't manipulate. He doesn't force people. Rather, people come to Christ because they want to come to Christ. Now, 
God might change the desires there of the heart, which indeed we know He does. Gives people a desire to want, but, but they come willingly. People come to Christ because they have a desire to come to Christ. Listen, you never need to force the Gospel down anybody's neck. You never need to do that. You tell them. You invite them. You even beg them. You compel them. You plead with them. But you never force them. And parents, I think this helps with your kids. I think of the almost nightly struggle that Ivana and I have with our children as we kneel beside the bed, particularly of our youngest two, and we pray. And I find myself always asking, Stephanie, do you want to pray? And Stephanie always says yes. And so she prays and prays and prays. And then we say, the bad true battle is David. David, do you want to pray? And sometimes she does. Sometimes she's quiet. And so we, David, would you like to pray? We say, please, David, will you pray? And there are times we just doesn't pray, and that's fine with us. And we just pray that God would move his heart, so he prays the next time. But we kiss him and love him. Uh, but there, there's a, a like invitation to the gospel. You can, you can tell people, but, but once you start forcing people into the kingdom, once you start twisting arms, or, or people come because of guilt, or people come, you've just messed everything up. Because God wants willing followers of Him. That's the one invitation. Notice now, the second point is the two peoples. You see this in the first part of verse 34. Notice the audience to whom Jesus says these things. He says He summoned the crowd with His disciples. This is no longer a private discussion between Jesus and the disciples as it was in verse 27 through 30. Jesus had got away to Caesarea Philippi and just talked to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? Well, who do you say that I am? And he talked to them about, verse 31, about how the Son of Man will suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He just spoke that to his disciples. But now, he says, he brings in everybody. And my guess is that there was a, another geographical um, switch down here south. They're beginning to get the crowds again. And he summons the crowd. He pulls all the people together and the disciples, all who need to hear. It's not only for those disciples who are closest to him, but it's those who are far from him. This one invitation needs to be heard by all. It's just heard from these two people. Now, here's I make this point because there are those who think that different people need different invitations. There are people who think that Christianity is all about believing in Jesus and maybe professing Jesus as your Savior, but then you need to come to this higher level of commitment where you then become His disciple, right? Jesus becomes the Lord of your life. And I've heard many testimonies of that, that I prayed to receive Jesus as my Savior. He forgave my sins, but it was not till many years later that I received Him as Lord. Now, I understand what people are saying by that. Let me, let me just clarify what's going on there. I professed with my mouth I believed in Jesus and God was working on my heart and I did a lot of religious thing, but boy, when I really fully came to understand who He was, God opened my eyes and I became a Christian. That would be a better translation of that language. There's not this, there's not this dual call to discipleship. Jesus is making this one summons to everybody and this is about as high a summons as it gets. This is about as hard as the words of Jesus get. This is a hard message. He says to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Me. Now, there's some who think it's better to bring a soft message to people. People don't want to hear about their sin. People don't want to hear about the demands to call Jesus. Let's, let's get people in and let's just maybe sugarcoat it for a little bit because they think if they like us, then they'll like our Jesus. 
If you tell them hard things, they might go away. They might not believe. Well, Jesus didn't have this problem. He often called people to such a commitment. There was a, a rich young ruler coming and asking Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow Me and you'll have treasure in heaven. It's pretty hard. And there's still willing followers. He says, I'm going to come. He says, well, it's going to cost you everything. And he left away not. And Jesus, didn't, Jesus loved the man, but he didn't lose sleep over it. He says, Jesus presented this call. If you want to follow Christ, this is what it demands. When a willing man came to Jesus, he said, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Basically, he's saying, okay, you're going to follow me wherever? We have no place to lay our head. We have no place, no den. You're going to follow me? Now, we don't know if this man did or not. Another man wanted to follow Christ, but he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. And I know I would have the compassionate response. Okay, you go bury your father, and then, then you come. But Jesus said, no, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, Jesus wasn't accommodating to this man's attempts to get a disciple. He said, no, this is the demand. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. On another occasion... Jesus said to the crowds, in fact, in Luke chapter 14, when the crowds were at their height, it says large crowds were going along with them. This was his um, audience reduction sermon, if you will. This is when everybody's following him. And I think Jesus was fearful. They're just following me because it's the thing to do. And listen to the hard words of Jesus. When he's at his peak of his popularity, here's the one message that he brings, which is similar right here. And my argument is, this is for everyone. This is the message that needs to be preached. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If there's a relationship that has higher priority than a relationship with the Lord, Jesus says, you can't be my disciple. End of conversation. Can't be. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You want to be a disciple of Christ? You've got to take up your cross. You've got to follow Him. And he says, For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule, saying, This man began to build but was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming to him with 20,000? Or else, while he is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. And you know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, listen, I'm just putting it out there for you. I'm like, you know, you, you, you got this tower you're going to build. I'm going to tell you how big it's got to be, the supplies you've got to have, the labor you've got to have. Are you willing to build the tower? Are you able to build the tower? I'm going to tell you that there are people coming against you with war. Are you going to fight them or are you going to, are you going to go for peace? This is what I'm saying. You've got to give up everything to be my disciple. You count the cost and see whether you want to come. Because I don't want the embarrassment of somebody coming, yes, oh, I didn't realize it cost me my life. I don't want that. So what Jesus is doing. He's setting out right expectations so when people come, they understand fully what He's demanding of them. And it's no less than total commitment. And that was at the height of His popularity. This is the one message that ought to be spoken to everybody. With your neighbor, talk to them. With your friend, talk to them. With your coworker, talk to them. With your children, talk to them. 
Don't sugarcoat the gospel. This is the gospel right here. This is what Christ calls for us. Verse 34 is for everybody. It's for all who want to follow Christ. Do you want to follow Christ? Do you want to follow Jesus? Well, Jesus gives three conditions. Right here in verse 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, there's the the global, the one invitation spoken to two peoples. Here are the three conditions. He must deny himself. He must take up his cross. He must follow me. Now, you can't pick and choose these three. There are three of them. You can't say, um, I'll take number one and number three, please. This is, this is an all-or-nothing deal. You need to take all of them. You need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him if you want to follow Jesus. Well, let's just look at these three, one by one. It's a real simple message. I'm just trying to get what Jesus is saying into our hearts and minds. We might evaluate. Maybe we're on the path. Maybe we're not on the path. Maybe we need to get on the path. Deny yourself. That means to renounce your life. Give up your life. It means that you give up all self-reliance. As one commentator said, the basic idea of this word is to say no. It's to disown. To deny oneself is to disown. Not just one's sins, but oneself. To turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. Deny yourself, right? Be focused and centered upon others. It means your allegiance isn't towards yourself. Rather, your allegiance is geared towards the one whom you're following. This is what Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. And when you love Him that way, there's no self-love there. It's then directed to love your neighbor as yourself. Our problem is that we do love ourselves and Jesus says you need to deny that love because you're following another. This is what many men do when they signed up for the armed services. They go to the recruiter's office, they sign on the dotted line, and in that signing, they have denied themselves. They say, my allegiance is now towards another's for the sake of the country. Release all personal sovereignty. Now under the authority of the U.S. military, the military tells, them, tells this man then where to go, this woman, where to go, what to do, how to act, how to act in society, how to act in combat. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You need to sign on the dotted line and you need to say it's no longer about Steve Brandon, it's now about Jesus. And sign up under another sovereign to deny yourself and to say no to yourself. And allegiance to King Jesus, we say yes to Jesus. No to ourselves and yes to Jesus. Releasing all personal sovereignty under the authority of Christ. We'll go where He tells us to go. We'll act as He tells us to act. We will follow Him. And if that's not your heart's disposition, you're not a disciple of Christ. I mean, plain and simple. You want to follow Jesus? You need to deny yourself. If you're not denying yourself, if you haven't denied yourself, you haven't renounced yourself, you haven't renounced your sin, you're not a disciple. This condition needs to be met. I mean, it's like you saying, well, I'm playing follow the leader. You ever seen that before? Where a child tries to play follow the leader. You know, we had a, we had a great time a couple of weeks ago. We had a, a birthday party for David. And uh, one of the games that uh, was played by the kids on our playset, we played follow the leader on the playset. And as I remember, Avon, I'm not exactly right, Thatcher was invited to the party. Now, Thatcher's just a little guy. And uh, he followed for a little bit, but then off he went every, everywhere. Now, now, Thatcher in his own mind was playing follow the leader, but he really wasn't playing follow the leader. <laughs> because you can't play follow the leader unless you do follow the leader. 
If you don't go around the play set, if you don't go up the slide and then down the ladder, if you don't go under the swing, you're not a follower. You might say, I'm playing follow leader. You're not playing follow the leader. And if you're not playing follow the leader, you're not a disciple of Jesus. The one who hasn't denied sin in self isn't following Jesus. That's what it takes to follow Jesus. A denial of self and a submission to the Lord. It's at the heart of what Paul said to the Ephesian elders when he says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. Just think of that. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. That's what it means to deny. It's, it's like, my, my life is yours, Lord. It, it's not about me or, or my life or what I want. It's all about you. And then he continued that. It's not dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. That is what God had given to Paul. To go to the Gentiles and preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. And so he said, that's what God says. That's what I will do. That's what I will go. It's not dear to me. It's not my plan. It's God's plan. I'm going to walk in that plan. That is a model of self-denial. And I know self-denial can be hard. I mean, any of you that have struggled with weight problems, diet is there. Self-denial means to turn away from the food that you don't need. And it's hard. I know firsthand. I'm heavier now than I've ever been in my life. My, maybe my metabolism's slowing down. I, I'm not sure, but it's it's hard to turn away. And uh, so last night, what was I doing? I was eating the cake and the frosting, right? Deny yourself. It's hard. Maybe there's some things you're addicted to. Whether it's sinful things, non-sinful things, you just have the, the desire to do that. Whether it's cigarettes or whether it's the internet, whether it's a way of speaking, whether it's your language, whether it's your words. There, there are things where you need to deny yourself. Now, we can take comfort thinking about how we don't do this perfectly like Peter. Remember Peter? When Jesus said to His disciples, they'd all fall away. Jesus said, even though all fall away, I'm not going to fall away. And, and, and Jesus pointed right at him to know Peter, before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. Before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times, is what He said. Peter said, no, no, no. He says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Same word here. He says, I, I'm, I'm not going to deny you, right? That's where you are. And then what happened? Before the Sanhedrin, Peter's sitting outside the courtyard and these little girls accuse him of being with Jesus. He says, no, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I do not know what you're talking about. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. Three times and then, grr, Now, in some regard, that should be a comfort to us to see even Peter, the time of trial, fell And yet, don't be comforted that he fell. Be comforted that he was restored. See, Peter had a heart and a desire that said, yes, I'm following you, Lord, with all I have. And yet, in his weakness, he fell. So, I'm not talking about perfection here, okay? But I'm talking about a general disposition of life. Is a general disposition of your life outward, others' words, upward? Or is it inward and all about me? When you speak with others, who do you talk about? Do you talk about yourself? Do you find out about others? Right? Do you care for others? Do you give? Do you serve? Do you help? Our self-denial might not be perfect, but it ought to be the direction of our life. And even Jesus here talks about an aorist command. This is a one-time. This is like, I have denounced myself. Now, you're going to continue to struggle in continuing to denounce yourself, but 
But that's like one time foot in the stand. This is where I am. I have been, I, it's not about me anymore. It's about Jesus. And when Peter said, I don't know the man. I don't know him. That's what we ought to say about ourselves. I don't know me. I don't know me. I, I'm denying myself. Well, dying to ourselves really is then essentially the second condition that Jesus lays. Not only do you need to deny yourself, but you need secondly to take up your cross. And Jesus here pulls from a common event of the day. He referred to that of a, of a criminal who received a death sentence for a crime that he committed. Um, this was a, a common thing in the days of Jesus. Many died by crucifixion each year. Uh, we don't know how many, but we know definitely A.D. 70, when people were trying to escape Jerusalem, Josephus records that they were crucifying people outside the city walls and they were wanting for wood. In other words, they didn't have enough wood to crucify enough people. So, if they did that A.D. 70, it was the common, uh, the common execution upon those who were criminals. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion. The Persians did, but they perfected it. They, they learned how to bring about maximal suffering in the life of somebody. Crucifixion, in fact, was so horrible in the days of Jesus that Roman citizens were exempt from being crucified. It was reserved for foreigners and prisoners of war, most violent of criminals, and Jesus, of course, we know. It was considered to be the most shameful, the most painful, the most abhorrent of all executions. The Roman statesman Cicero called it the most cruel and disgusting penalty and the most extreme penalty. Josephus, who saw enough crucifixions himself, called it the most wretched of deaths. And then here, listen to this testimony. I found this on a website of uh, Julius Paulus. He put crucifixion as the, as the worst of all capital punishments. Uh, crucifixion was above burning to death or dying by beheading or death by wild beast. Seneca, I have this quotation from him. He said this, Can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb or or letting his life drop by drop rather than expiring once for all? In other words, does someone want or desire or think about dying slowly? He says, Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long, sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly wounds on shoulders and chest, and drawing the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony? He would have many excuses for dying even before mounting the cross. And the Romans would begin their execution to maximize their suffering by flogging the individual. Fatigue him, weakening him. And then the criminal will be forced, and here's our imagery, right, to take the beam. So, patabulum is what the Latin word for it is. Sometimes, most often, just the cross beam. They take that cross beam and then they have to carry it, sometimes weighing up to 300 pounds, carrying it to the place of execution, just fatiguing them and fatiguing them and fatiguing them until they get to the point of execution. Then when they got there, the criminal would be nailed to the cross, the cross would be lifted high, and he'd be left to, to die as he hung there from suffocation. He may last a few hours, he may last a couple of days. But once he took up his cross and once he picked that up, his death sentence was secured. There were Roman soldiers around him. He couldn't drop that cross. They were going to keep it on him. If maybe in the case of Jesus he was too weak, then someone else would carry it for him. But only after it was determined he absolutely could not carry that cross. 
There were no appeals at that point. There was no way out. No last minute pardon by the governor. Once the cross was picked up, he was on his death march to be crucified. That's the imagery that Jesus brings to mind. You want to follow after me? Well, take up your cross. Start your death march. And that's required of anyone and everyone who wants to be a disciple of Christ. Now we deny ourselves, but we take up a crossbeam and are ready, willing to die, walk in that path of death. Already one foot in the grave. That's what it takes. We need to die to ourselves. We need to be ready to face martyrdom. In fact, Christian martyrs, in some sense, it's easy because they've died already. It's just merely carrying out what they've already determined in their own heart. And that's the picture that would have been in mind these people. Now, in Christian language, there's this metaphor that's often used, well, that's my cross to bear often referring maybe to a painful relationship or a painful sickness in your life. Or my mother-in-law, that's my cross to bear. Just what I have. That's not what Jesus meant. In fact, I remember a few years ago, there was a couple here in Rockford who read this verse and said, take up, if anyone wants to come to me, let's take up his cross and follow me. And so they erected this big cross. I remember seeing it. It was maybe 10 feet tall, 8 feet tall, something like that. Put some wheels on it and determined to walk that cross by every home in Rockford as they prayed for people. Like, it's okay to do, I guess. I mean, it's a great publicity, bringing focus on Jesus and praying. I love that, that every house in Rockford was prayed for, and I think it took them several years to do this. Um, but that's not what this text means, okay? This text means you'd be ready and willing to die. And Jesus requires this of all who would follow Him. Well, at this point in the narrative of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus hadn't yet been crucified. He was willing, but it hadn't happened yet. If nothing else, verse 31 points how He's willing to die. And Today is Father's Day. Um, my father's not here, but I can honor him today. Um, I think one lesson I was asked recently, what's, what's one lesson your dad has taught you as you've learned? And this is the one that just pops into my mind. And uh, it's this, is that I've heard my, my father repeat often and often. He said, Steve, I will never ask you to do anything that I haven't done first or that I'm not willing to do myself. And, and I just tell you, throughout the years, that is very true of him. He never demanded of me anything that he hadn't first done or that he wouldn't be willing to do. So in other words, when he came home, he was never kingpin telling people what to do. He would come and serve and then call me to serve after his example and his model. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is expecting all of his followers to take up the cross and be ready to die. And he himself hadn't done that yet, but he was willing and in fact then later he did that And now we have a fuller understanding of what it means to take up our cross. It's what Jesus expects of His followers. It's what Paul's perspective was. Listen to Paul, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. There he is. I I died with Christ. I mean, I picked up my cross beam and I died with Jesus. Now, there's a lot going on there in terms of our union with Christ through faith, but I think what Paul is talking about is that it's, it's no longer me who lives. Remember how that verse ends? Therefore, the life which I live in the flesh, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. In other words, I've denied myself. I've looked to Him. I've been crucified with Him. He joins His crucifixion. He joins by faith in His living. And He trusts that Christ is going to strengthen Him and empower Him to live rightly through that. It's the Gospel, right? We die to self. We die to sin. Christ comes in. He, he's our strength. And He's our song. He becomes our joy. And we entrust our eternal future to Him. That's, that's the glories of Christ. And it's totally worth it. Which we'll get to in a moment. But the third condition of following Jesus, I don't need to spend much time on this, is because He says to follow Jesus. You want to follow Jesus? Then follow Jesus. That's what He's saying. If anyone wants to come after Me, literally, if anyone wants to follow Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. And I think if those first two conditions are met, the third one comes quite easily. If you've denied yourself, you've done so for Christ. If you've taken up your cross, you've done so for Christ. Following Christ then is the result. At this point, I just simply ask you, are you a follower of Christ? Have you denied yourself, renounced your sin? Can you say with Paul, whatever things were gained to me, all my religious accomplishments, these things, Paul says, I've accounted as loss. He's not thinking of himself. He's died to himself. I count them as lost for the sake of Christ, Philippians 3.7. Have you taken up your cross? Are, are you ready to make whatever sacrifices is needed to follow Jesus? Because once you've died, every other sacrifice is minuscule, right? It's all about expectations. And when the sufferings of the Christian life come, oh yes, oh yes, they're hard. But when you pale them against death, they don't, they don't seem so hard anymore. There's the expectation. In other words, are you an imitator of God? Do you imitate God? Do you follow after Him? Ephesians 5.2 Do you walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for you? I love. Here's, here's Christ dying, loving and dying, and He calls us to love and die also. Now, one of the things I love about Jesus as we transition into verses 35 through, 40, through 38 is that He doesn't merely call us to radical commitment like just to do it, to do it for doing its sake. He gives good logical reasons why. This is where Christianity stands the test of logic. It stands the test of reason. Um, people who follow Christ and give their lives totally are those who are in their right mind. They're not crazy. They've thought this thing through. And that's what Jesus gives in verses 35 through 38. We reasons why we ought to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Him. We've seen one invitation. We've seen one invitation given to two peoples. We've given three conditions and now we have four reasons. Right? Four reasons for following after Jesus. Why we ought to abandon our life. And each verse contains a reason. In fact, if you look there, you can tell. Each verse begins with this, this word for or gar. Now, some translations are good at translating this. Other translations are not. Um, the, e, the NASB and the ESV are very good in this regard. Verse 35, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Verse 36, For what does it profit a man? Verse 37, For what will a man give in exchange for a soul? Verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me. Every time there's a, a because, because, because. These are the conditions. And they says because, for this reason, for this reason, for this reason, four times, to say it makes sense to abandon everything. I mean, think about it this way. Well, even before we think about that, every single one of these reasons has eternity behind it. Okay? So, in other words, right, we're sitting here this morning, I've 
thought about the words of Jesus. And if these words make no sense to you, why you would deny Jesus and take up your cross and follow it, well, I would say it's because you are short-sighted. You're only thinking about your earthly life. Because if you're only thinking about your earthly life, you know what? This is stupid. My son would tell me not to use that word, but I would use that word. You're an idiot if you're following this just for this life. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection from the dead, we are of all men most to be pitied. You're supposed to make fun of people who, who deny themselves, take up their cross, if there's no life after death. And I would say if you're struggling here with these three conditions, it's because you're short-sighted. You only see this life. You only see 20 years ahead of you. You only see five years ahead of you. You only see 40 years ahead of you. And I'm asking you today to see a million years ahead of you. Because if you see a million years ahead of you, these conditions will be small. They won't seem so bad. What you've got to look is beyond this life. Your vision is too short-sighted. Think about it this way. All right. What would induce a young man to give his life to the military? I used the illustration before. It's going to follow the government. What, what would induce them? They're in the youth. They're in the prime of their life. They have energy. They have potential. They have freedom to pursue whatever they want. And why would they willingly give their life away? Why would they sign on that line to say, I'm not mine. I'm the government's not. Why would you do that? Why would any man in his right mind go through the hardships of boot camp? Why would any man in his right mind give up his sovereignty? Why would any man in his right mind be forced to discipline living? They can play video games all night long, whatever, and do, do whatever he wants. Why, why would a, a man um, sign up for the dangers that await them in deployment? To go into Iraq, or go into Afghanistan, or go into any other place? If you only look and ask that question... It makes no sense why anyone would sign up for the military. I mean, I understand those in Israel have to sign up. But to do that voluntarily, that's foolish. But if you look at their whole life, it might make some sense when you, when you see that, oh, they get some vocational training. Okay, there's a benefit for that. They get uh, some scholarship opportunities for school. Oh, okay. They have leadership training. They have advancement opportunities. They have job security. And when you start adding up all those things, then you might say, oh, this person's life is better in the army than it is on his own because, yes, it's hard, but the benefits that await him through it at the end of what they develop, he's going to be way better off than he was at the beginning. And all those things are worth it. They're worth it to endure the hardships of discipline and danger, moving around the country every few years, going into foreign lands where it's dangerous because of the benefits that they have. And so likewise, listen with Jesus. It's the benefits that we go for in following Him. He isn't calling us to a life of self-denial and cross-bearing for no reason. Listen, these are good reasons. have everything to do with eternity and it's after life. And Jesus says, listen, you follow me, it's worth it all. It's totally worth it. No one, no one ever gave his life to Christ ever to regret the sacrifices that were made in his life. No one ever gave their life to Christ and in the end regretted it because they're bearing fruit for all eternity. Jim Elliot said, can't, go, can't preach this text without quoting Jim Elliot, right? You guys know it? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. 
That's what Jesus says. You're not a fool if you give up your life because giving up your life, you get what you can't lose. You're the fool if you try to hold on to your life and give it up because you can't keep that, but you'll lose eternity. And by earthly standards, Jim Elliot gave up everything he could not keep. He gave up his life in seeking to bring the gospel to the Wadrani Indians in Ecuador. He and his friends, many of you know that story, trying to bring the gospel to these Warriors, hunters, as they did that, made initial contact with his people, made a habit of killing others, they themselves were speared on the beach. And I'm just telling you, today, Jim Elliot regrets nothing about his martyrdom. Think about what happened in his martyrdom. It made him an earthly hero. His death has made him a heavenly hero. His death was a catalyst to bring many in the Wadrani tribe to Christ. His death has been a catalyst to have many serve Christ in foreign lands. He does not regret it at all. Jim Elliot was no fool. He understood clearly what Jesus was saying in our text this morning. Don't cling to what you can't keep. Rather, let go of what you can't keep and cling to the things that you can never lose. Well, let's look at the four reasons why we should follow Christ. And I'm appealing to your logic. I'm appealing to your senses here this morning. First of all, reason number one, why you should follow Christ is your salvation. Your salvation. That's the point of verse 35. Look at the saving language. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. This is the way that God has made our life. Our lives consist of two parts. The life before we die and the life after we die. And there's a part before we die that we we have for a bit, but we can't keep it. And then there's a part afterwards which if God gives us life, we can't lose it. And I say, do you want to lose your life eternally? Which of you want to lose your life eternally? I just say, save your life today. Save it today. Savor it all you got. Who wants to save their life eternally? You want to do that? Then lose your life today. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Him. Jesus told several parables to illustrate this truth. I'll just pick the one from Luke 16, 19 through 31, the story about rich man and Lazarus. Now, there was a rich man. He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus laid at the gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's tables. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. Being in torment, he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so he may dip the the tip of his finger in water and may cool off my tongue, for I am in agony because of this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between you and us, there's this great chasm fixed 
So those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And the rich man was in such agony and Jesus pictures it so hard and so terrible that he said, I beg you then, Father, send him away to my father's house for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so they will not come to this place of torment. Here's someone speaking from hell saying, alert those people who are living so they might change their ways and they might live for eternity, not just for the pleasures of the here and now. I live for the pleasures of the here and now and I lost eternity. And so tell them not to live for eternity. Tell them not to live for now. Live for eternity. And Abraham said, no, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. It's a great lifting high of Scripture. And I just tell you today that if you're not listening to the words of Jesus today uh, about the value of losing your life today and living for eternal life, rather than saving your life for today and then losing it in eternity, if you're not listening to what Jesus says in His Word, you won't even listen if someone rises from the dead. You won't listen even if some miracle happens before your eyes. Because you have Moses and the prophets, you have Jesus and the disciples right here. So listen to them. That's how powerful this word is. The rich man who lived only for his life upon the earth and in the end cost him life in eternity. He was a fool. He chose the pleasures upon earth. In my office hangs this calligraphy that Avon did. And um, well, it's been ha- I took this off the wall, Avon, today. <laughs> and the paint is different around the wall than it is. It's just, uh, who knows, the aging of the paint, I guess, that sees the sun. But this has been up there a long time. Uh, to my shame, I don't look at it all the time. It just blends into the woodwork. But it's up there for a reason. It's up there to remind me of the reality of this life that I live, that you live. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's what Jesus is saying. Amen, huh? And we know that in our heads. May we feel that in our hearts. May we're like the disciples. Oh, God, help me in my unbelief. I, I believe. But, but this ought to be the constant reminder to say, okay, I've got to labor for Christ because that's the only thing that's going to last. Everything else on the earth is going to just fade away. I'll just say this is a concept why I'm in ministry today. As most of you know, before becoming a pastor, I was in the computer industry. Loved computers. Still love computers. How they work. Technology. I love technology. I love how they work. I love programming a computer to do whatever I want it to do. Um, very fun. I get excited about that. SR, don't I? <laughs> in a strange, <laughs> in a strange sort of way, I, I, I just like that kind of stuff. But when God placed an opportunity for ministry in my life, um, I, I jumped to the chance. I said, yeah, that's what I, that's what I, I want to do. Because I, I knew that the fruit of my labors would reap for eternity. And I was able to be freed up by your grace to be able to provide funds for me so as our family can live, so that I can then labor and serve you in the gospel, so I can labor what I can for eternal fruit. And how different this is than, than other work. I, I, I've got some great illustrations from this from my other two major jobs I had before I was a, a pastor. Um, before then, I worked for Arthur Anderson, um, big 
six accounting firm. I worked at the Worldwide Center in St. Charles, Illinois. Uh, commuted about 35 minutes or so, 30, 40 minutes. Great. It's allowed me to listen to MacArthur on the way in and MacArthur on the way back as I listened to my cassette tapes. Loved the time. Loved my work there. At work. I was a software programmer. And um, literally, if I wanted to move my monitor from one side of the desk to another, I'd call somebody and they'd move it for me so that I might just focus on my programming. I could work from home. It was a, a wonderful job. I think I worked there maybe six years. And uh, shortly after I left, Arthur Anderson the accounting firm hired to audit Enron. And uh, Enron, if those of you have been around long enough, I don't, Enron crashed maybe in 1997 or 6 or 98, I don't know, somewhere, somewhere around there. And uh, they accounted Arthur Anderson, they hired Arthur Anderson to be the accounting firm so that they audit their books. And so the book says, yep, they check okay. And so they tell the stockholders, yep, they check okay. We got Arthur Anderson's stamp of approval on it. Well, the books were bad and Arthur Anderson was helping to cover it up rather than helping to expose. And so they're, they're not doing the very job they were trained to do. And basically when Enron crashed, um, Arthur Anderson crashed as well. In fact, I remember in those days when they were crashing, I had some inside scoop with some people and they just talked about how the, the partner at that place was just shredding documents like crazy because they knew it was all bad. In fact, on the children's notes I got there, Arthur Anderson shredding company. <laughs> That's a joke. They were shredding on these documents so they wouldn't be um, accused of whatever, whatever's there. Some people are in jail because of that. Arthur Anderson, it's a company I worked for, long gone. Anything I software programmed, long gone. I mean, it's just, it's just not around. It's a great picture to me of earth and its temporalness. Or I worked for Kishwaukee Community Hospital, my second job. I worked there for maybe, I don't know, six years as well, I think. And I love my job, um, hands-on, the latest, greatest computer technology. Um, shortly after I left the hospital, though, they decided to build a new hospital. And so they built this wonderful building about oh, a half mile as the crow flies in a different, different location. And, and I, I, wasn't, I was up here in Rockford, but I remember going down one time and seeing where the old hospital was. And you know what it was? It was a pile of rubble. I mean, it was just... It was just rocks is really all it was. Everything was scrounged out of there, taken out of there, and it was just this big... Now it's like not even there. Uh, I drive down there sometimes in DeKalb and say, where is this place? And it just looks like open field. It's like I, don't, I couldn't even step where it was. It's like, it's like gone. And so likewise, everything that we do here on earth is going to burn up. It's going to be gone. It's going to be a pile of rubble someday. And, and I know yeah, a lot of you are working in jobs like that. We, maybe you're, you're working in a cleaning job where you clean it, and what happens later is it's, it's dirty again. I got that cleaning didn't last. Or maybe you work in some place, and eventually the buildings are going to come down. Or eventually all your work goes away. Or maybe even if you're in construction, maybe you build a house that stands for a bit, but after 100 years, 200 years, who knows, are going to be taken down and destroyed. That's what life is like. And I just know that labor for Christ, though, will, will last. It's the true labor that lasts for eternity. And I, I know that, that most all of you will not be able to be in full-time ministry. That's okay. There is a way that you can labor, though, in a similar way for laboring in a way that lasts. Jesus said, this is to everyone, whether you're working full-time, whether you're a mom, whether you're a child, whatever you are, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
You all can labor for eternity. It's not just full-time professional pastors, okay? You all can work and labor for eternity. Giving the Lord praise. Giving to people. Of the overflow of everything that God labor for people, labor for Christ, love others, and those are the kind of things which you, you don't really see many times, but your labor and love for the gospel will endure. And I just say, focus your attention upon there, because that's the smart, wise thing to do. It's stupid just to labor here for your own things. And I just say this long before I was ever in full time ministry, I was investing in eternity. And that's precisely what, in many ways, led my path to full-time ministry. And I feel for more grace, for more of life, to see life in this perspective. All right, there's reason number one. We'll go through the others faster. Not only should we follow Christ because of our salvation, but secondly, because of your soul. Verse 36, your soul. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Again, I'll illustrate this with a parable. Jesus did. Often. Luke 12, 16-21. The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This man sought to put all his treasures in the world, in his retirement account, so he can sit back and eat, drink, and be merry. But he ended up losing it in eternity. He lost it the next day. And God, by the way, called him what? Did you catch that? He called him a fool. Right, Gates? Is that what you're going to say? Call him a fool. And how many fools are there in America? They're all around. Been rich in this life, but have failed to be rich towards God. And God will say someday, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. I say, don't live for this life. Live for the life to come. It makes sense. I read yesterday of uh, Alan Stanford. Never heard of him before until yesterday. You've probably heard of him, Phil, right? Um, Chairman of Stanford Financial Group. His father, and he made a fortune purchasing um, depressed real estate. I think it was in Texas or something. And then selling it when the market recovered. And then with this money, then he began investing and became an investment managing company and just starting to invest. Well, he was a Ponzi scheme is what he was. In other words, he was returning to investors the money that others invested rather than in turning the profit that, that came about as a result of these investments. And yesterday came his sentence. He was guilty. Sentence was 110 years in prison for bilking investors out of more than $7 billion over the past two decades. Now, Alan Stanford lived it up in his life. He had yachts. He had private jets. He sponsored cricket tournaments. Those were the things that he did. He, I think he had dual citizenship with America and he lived some other, some other place, one of the Caribbean uh, islands. And there he was. Living lavishly. 
for 20 years. And yesterday, it was as if God said to him, you fool, today your soul is required of you. Now, for Alan Stanford, the, the time has come. So everyone who operates, operates a Ponzi scheme knows is that the, the time comes we can no longer bring in as much as you can shovel out to their investors. Because you always got to get new business. You new business. And, and those of you who are in sales know how hard new business is to get. Okay? But you've got to keep coming new business so you can get that out. Okay? And, and you live off the, off the others. And as time has came, all the wealth he enjoyed for decades is gone. And in exchange, what's he going to have? A jail cell for the next 110 years of his life. So, kid, how old is he going to be when he gets out? I think he's 60 now. How old is he going to be when he gets out? How old, Jared? Yeah, he's going to be dead. That's what you said, right? He's going to be dead. He's going to live the rest of his life in a jail cell. Who knows? Six by nine by eight. Jail cell. I ask you, what does it profit a man like Alan Stanford to live in luxury for 20 years and then spend the rest of his life in prison? You might say 20 years of yachts and jets and my sponsored sporting activities. Hey, doesn't sound so bad. I mean, I don't know how old he is. 50, 60? Do you know how old he is? Whatever. He's somewhere around. He's 60 years old. He lives 20 years. 20 years of pleasure for 20 years of jail. Thinking earthly-wise, that might be okay. But now... Think about it eternity-wise. What if he would spend an eternity in prison? Would 20 years of pleasure be enough? 20 years compared to billions and billions and billions and billions of years with pleasure in heaven? Does that compare? I don't think so. I don't think anybody would argue that that would compare well. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Verse 36, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What's more valuable, billions of dollars or your soul? Seven billion dollars he heisted from his investors. Seven billion. And, and Jesus would say, is seven billion dollars, what, what's worth more, seven billion dollars or your soul? Help me kids. Seven billion dollars. Yes, your soul. That's... Seven billion dollars, that's a lot, a lot of money. Alright? That's a lot of money. We could buy Rockford with seven billion dollars, okay? Maybe not. Probably could. That's a lot of money. But that's, that's right where Jesus goes in this third reason. Reason number one, why to follow Christ, your salvation. Reason number two, your soul. Reason number three, your soul. Same thing. He just expands on the theme. Verse 37. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, right? It's a rhetorical question. What, what are you going to give for your soul? And the answer is, what do you give? Nothing. You can't give anything for your soul. There is nothing that a man can give in exchange for his soul. He, he gains the whole world. He can't pay that for his soul. Okay, so let's think about it. How, how much is the whole world worth? A dollar, kids. You think the world's worth more than a dollar? Adults, you think the world? You think it's more more than a dollar? What do you think, Caleb? Ten dollars? 
find an auction where how much is the world worth? $100 maybe? A million? Ten million? Hundred million? A thousand million, which is a billion? Okay? Ten billion? Hundred billion? A trillion? Ten trillion? How much is the whole world worth? Well, let's see, see, our debt is right now somewhere, whatever. 17 trillion, I don't know, 10, 15 trillion, whatever. So, and our gross national product, as I recall, is about 110 trillion. So even the United States, which creates a good chunk of the world's economy, is 110 trillion dollars in gross national product. Maybe it's worth more than that in assets. Maybe. So you're talking about at least a quadrillion, maybe even more. The whole world is worth that much, if you can even try to quantify that. Now, let me ask. Ten quadrillion dollars. Which is worth more, that or your soul? Your soul is worth more than ten quadrillion dollars. It's amazing. And so I say, why is it so valuable? Because it's going to live forever and ever and ever. So, uh, suppose this. Suppose that you are given a penny each day in eternity. A penny each day for eternity. No, let's... A, a penny each year that you spend in eternity. Just give it some time. And what's going to be worth more? Your bank account? Gaining no interest, by the way. Your bank account or the worth of the whole world? What's going to be worth more? your bank account will be worth more a penny each year eventually than the whole of earth. I think that's why our souls are more valuable because they're, they're eternal. And I just say that since your soul is so valuable, it's worth everything to sacrifice for your soul. And Jesus says, don't just be willing to die and deny yourself. Just be other-centered. Is it worth it? Yes, it's worth it. You'll never regret your investment, by the way. You'll never regret it. All right, the last point. Got to go fast. Reason number four, your salvation, your soul, your soul, your shame. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Jesus again looks at an eternal perspective. Every single one of these arguments, always looking at eternity, looking at eternity. Jesus says that the day when he returns in the glory of his Father, right in that day, everybody will know that Jesus is coming back. And the sign of the Son of Man comes everywhere. Lightning flashes across the sky. And God comes, Jesus comes in glory. There's no doubt what's happening. Unlike the first time he came, he came as a humble baby, born in a feeding trough. This next time, he's going to come as the sovereign king, Lord of lords. Everyone's going to know he's coming. And it says in verse 38, he's coming with his holy angels. Always, you see, when he's coming back, the angels are there. And the angels often divide the wheat from the tares and the goats from the sheep. Listen to what Jesus says just a couple chapters later. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give forth its light. And the stars will be falling from the sky, from, from the heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. There's the Son of Man coming in the glory of His Father in verse 27. 
And then He will send forth the angels and will gather His elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth and from the farthest end of heaven. In that day, all will stand before God to give account for our life and Jesus will be there to testify of our lives. Now, those who believe and trust in Christ will receive Jesus as an advocate. He'll, he'll plead the Father for you. He'll say, he'll say, Father, this soul shall come into the kingdom because He trusted in Me. My righteousness becomes His righteousness and He shall come into My kingdom. Let Him in. But those who have not trusted in Christ, Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from Me. And so you'll come. You'll see Jesus as an advocate or one who's going to send you out your way. Now, one of the ways that we trust Christ is by the profession of our mouth. Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen to what he says. Paul says in Romans 10.10, With the heart a man believes, resulting in righteousness. With a mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The heart believes, the mouth confesses, and there's salvation. There's, there's, a, there's a, a proclamation of what the heart believes. It's the belief that drives the heart. And so listen, if there is shame in professing the name of Christ, then the reality probably isn't there. And if the reality isn't there, it means you've been shamed to believe and trust in Jesus. You've been shamed to make His name known. Then when Jesus comes, He's going to be ashamed to make your name known before the Father. So therefore, let's be about those who make His name known. Let's be about those who speak to others about Jesus, who make known His Word. And the warning comes strong. If you're ashamed of Me and My words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. Jesus is talking about a sinful generation, an adulterous generation. What more generation is more sinful and adulterous than ours? Well, they're probably ours. But it means we don't go with the flow. It means that we are in a sinful and adulterous generation, but we're the ones that stand out and we say, I believe and trust in Jesus. He's my hope. He's the righteousness. And I deny myself. I've taken His cross and I'm following Jesus. You guys are going to the cesspool, but I'm going this way. And that's what your life needs to be out. It needs to stand out, in other words. It needs to be different than the society. It needs to be one that says, yes, I profess Jesus. I'm not ashamed of Him. And that's the one that God will confess Jesus will confess before that age. But if you're ashamed of Jesus now, you're not talking, you're not making Jesus an issue, He'll just gonna, he'll be ashamed of you. He will. But I want you to notice here that the, the whole act of living and not being ashamed of Jesus has much more to do with your life than it has to do merely with your words. Because it's your whole life, you've, you've, take, you've denied yourself taking your cross and followed Jesus. Your, your actions show it. Your, your life shows it. Your activities show it. Your attitudes show it. And yes, your words show it. Everything you do is a profession of what you believe. And Jesus demands us our all. And I just say, it'll be totally worth it. So don't be ashamed of Jesus. Follow the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, I know... I've been long today, and yet, what better words to reflect upon than words of eternal life where our souls are in the balance, O oh Lord. I pray that You would use something I said to help people see the, the glories of Jesus and turn from their ways. Not because they're forced or coerced, but because they, they delight and want the treasure. Because they, they love Jesus and want to make Him known because they know that 
It's only what's done for Christ that will last. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a, a congregation of people who love Jesus, who pursue after Him. And, Father, I, I, would, I would even pray, as Jesus did, with the big crowds. There are people who weren't following Him, don't want to follow Him. God, we, we love those kind of people who want to share the Gospel, want to persuade them to Christ. But if they're not, God, we let them go. God, but stir in the hearts of people to desire to to come to Jesus and that we would be a, a unified body that's seeking to make a difference in this world for Christ. We need you to come, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.